Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Good morning, everybody. Malcolm Teasdale here. And with me this morning is Jeff DeVito. Now, Jeff has been in the tourist industry for many, many years, but in various capacities. He does a lot. More about that in a minute. First thing I'm going to ask him is about fact is he is an anthropologist, I believe. By the way, Jeff, you're the first anthropologist I ever met. Now, my definition of anthropology is that it's a study of humanity, behavior, and biology in the past and the present. That's my brief definition of it. But Jeff, please explain why you decided to become an anthropologist. And well, tell me about that. I'm, I'm sort of first anthropologist I've ever met. So I'd like to know what was your motivation to be be that. Well, th- I don't know that. My, thank you, Malcolm. I don't know that my motivation was to be the first anthropologist that you'd ever met. Um, but I would say, <laughs> I would say to you, you have met more anthropologists than you know. Firstly, because not everybody brags about being an anthropologist the way that I do. But secondly, because we're all anthropologists. Anthropology is the study of understanding how we as humans relate to the world around us as the product, as we are products of our environment. So every way that you see the world, every way that you experience beauty and pleasure, that all has to do with the environment that you were raised in and all those subtle subliminal signs all around you. And so your worldview is determined by everything in your life from the recipes that your parents used to make when you were younger to the chat you used to hear down at the pub to the education you had to your feelings of religion and all these things collect into making you who you are and so what anthropology does is it tries to look at the circumstances that lead to people's world's views and then articulate those world views to others through something called ethnography which is the real study of people in their environment. And through this ethnography, the reporting of ethnography, is we as anthropologists are able to tell stories. So every storyteller you know is an anthropologist. The way I got into it was, was kind of funny. I grew up in New Hampshire, where I am today, and I ended up going over to university in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews. And I arrived there as a a cocky American at 18 years old, just in time to see the OJ Simpson trials. And so I, for the first time in my life, realized that I was being judged and that I was being looked at. And people were fascinated about me, not necessarily in a positive way. Yeah. And I stumbled into anthropology accidentally. But when I got there, I knew it was going to help me understand not only how I perceived, but how I was perceived. Yeah. 
And that's how, that's how it was. And I would okay. recommend anybody that has the opportunity to facilitate their children, especially if you're an American, to go overseas for a while. Exactly. To learn exactly. I wish the I, world is I, a lot bigger. I wish bigger. I had that in my brain cells when I was growing up because I think in my late teens, early 20s, that's, if what I know now I knew back then, then I probably would have gone to work overseas for maybe a year or two, but it wasn't the case. I was born and born and raised in Coventry, England. But you mentioned that uh, you went to St. Andrews, great little town or great little city. So I just wondered, I, I played the old course out on my 49th birthday. It was a cool thing with 40 mile an hour winds. So yeah, you can imagine what my <laughs> score was. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool thing. But do you find though, when you go to places today, I, I do, I'm more conscious aware of the environment that you're in is for me is it's refreshing to go to maybe a country or a place somewhere in the world where the country itself takes care of their environment. Now I'm a scuba diver, so the last couple of dive spots I've been to are in sort of rare places, but the country takes care to protect that environment, which means the the coral reef and the marine life is pristine. It's, you can't say that for many places in the world. Like the Great Barrier Reef is sort of not the place it used to be because of the uh, the climate issue. But you find, you know, if you go to places, you you sort of look around and yeah, it's um, you know they they probably haven't taken care of themselves as much as they should or or, or what. Do you have any thoughts like that? I, I do. That's a really interesting interesting question and one that I have thought about a lot as I have in my life tried to show people the world yeah. and I've listened to how people have, have seen the world. The first is that sometimes taking care of your environment in a pristine manner is a product of privilege and opportunity. So I grew up working at five-star hotels and resorts and our grass and our grounds and our swimming pool were in far better shape than the motel down the street. Right, of course, yes. And that was because there were the financial resources and the expectation of pristine that went along with that property that led to them being able to take care of that. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't take care of an environment if you are underfinanced, but you may have other priorities. Yeah. And so places that I visit around the world I'm impressed when things are manicured and well taken care of, like in Fife and St. Andrews. Yes. But I also understand that in the world we live in, very often that is a product of opportunity and luxury. Yeah. Um, so frequently in the, whether you want to call it global south or developing countries, they don't have the same opportunities that uh, the global north might as far as clean energy availability, right, that, they may not have perfect. the same recycling programs. So if you're in, you know, I work in the Gambia a lot and it's such a beautiful place that people take care of, uh, very with very much pride, but you're still going to see an abandoned car with broken windows on the side of the road from time to time. And that's just because there's nobody that says, Hey, let's nobody has the ability to pick that up. And so, yes, I do marvel at how people take care of their environment. Certainly more and more this becomes important, but the anthropologist in me puts it into, into context as okay. well. Okay, got it. And I understand the, the fact is that 
everyone can have that that mindset to a degree. And again, a pretty interesting mention Gambia. Isn't Gambia recently rejoined the Commonwealth as well? I don't know if you knew that. I did not know they did that. When did they do that? It's back it recently in the last few years, apparently. You know, there's about 53 countries in the Commonwealth. Now, I could be wrong, but I, I believe I read something like that. They, they rejoined it. I, I don't know. Uh, but I didn't. That's nothing that I've come across. Uh, I know the Gambians fiercely celebrate their their independence in, in all <laughs> sorts of ways. Um, I didn't know that. I, I don't know if that's a. Well, they're a still independent. Of I, I don't know. Yeah. Commonwealth. Just yeah, I'd love to find. I'll find out more about that. That's interesting. I never in. You know, when I go to the Gambia, that's all about storytelling and hearing stories yes, from, from people. Exactly. That's not one of the stories that uh, is often told. Um, the stories in the Gambia that are that are really told is the way that they were able to take the influence from 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 the British rule, yeah. from the British stewardship, or what what you want to call it, and then turn that around and be able to articulate their own values. Exactly, as with many countries did. Uh, Jeff, you have um, your website. I've got it on my screen here, GT, GD Synergy, in a picture of a tree there, Communication, Education, Corporation. Interesting love. So gdsynergy.com is the website for any listeners who want to pay that a visit. Please explain uh, what that company does or, or you and that company does for the world, so to speak. Yeah, there's a short answer and then there's a story. Everything for me has a story behind it. The short <laughs> answer, yeah, the short answer is that GD Synergy is all about trying to make tourist experiences as pleasurable and meaningful for others as I've had the opportunity to experience myself. And the underlying principle with those is creating equity between the visitor and the host. Yeah. And trying to tell the stories that the host wants to tell rather than those that the visitor expects to hear. Now, this is a very simple concept, but in the it's very important yeah. in tourism, in the world of travel and tourism, we bring our expectations to destinations with us, yeah. oftentimes based on media impressions, on previous travel shows of inappropriate stereotypes that we have. And when we arrive in the destination, we're almost disappointed that this wasn't what we had expected. And so we can sometimes as travelers keep asking the same question, waiting to get the answer we want until finally the tour guide just throws up their hand and says, okay, fine. Um, You're in Burma or Myanmar. Um, Fine. We'll get you a crab Rangoon, even though that doesn't really exist there so there's these different levels i understand that clearly that's why you may be the same i have a tendency to go off the beaten track a lot you know to go to obscure places where tourists don't go to and i have a better insight of how the people live from day to day and it's very educating i don't know if you feel the same way you just is traveling for me is a big educational experience and even though you know going to a mountain village in nepal somewhere you meet with the people and they have their own little community there. But you know what? They're quite happy. And they have no intention of really going anywhere else. They're just happy by themselves. They're not interested in problems of the world outside. Nothing wrong with that at all. Do you find yourself having the need to travel to such places like this or you know, get off the beaten track more now? Yeah. 
I would say that over the course of my life, I've had an interesting relationship with what off the beaten path is. And I've had to reevaluate constantly what authentic means. In anthropology, we find the words traditional and authentic to be incredibly problematic. And so because of that educational background and that foundational theory that I have living in in my head, underneath my hat every day, I find it problematic to experience those things when I'm, when I'm traveling. What I have come to look towards, what I try to do at GD Synergy and what I've tried to do over the past 25 years of my professional yep. life in hospitality is create genuine, meaningful experiences, which allow people to feel connected. Yeah. And then when they go home, when they return back home, and the news shows a protest in Athens. Suddenly, that person that went to Athens last week is the expert in the room. When we used to, when we used to get together, yeah. in the rooms together, and everyone's looking at them. They're saying, "Oh, well, what was what's what's Athens like?" And suddenly, this person that has had a short-term experience, a short-term visit, whether it's four hours if you're on a cruise ship, whether it's uh, a day if you're backpacking around, or yeah. a week, it's still a short term. Then they can say, "Well." I was sitting in this cafe, just bought a fresh piece of fish. Someone came over to me and said, hey, Jeff, have you heard about this crisis? And so those are the experiences that I try to create for people. In my personal travel life, I've gone through the whole roller coaster of going to the most remote extreme places I could find and almost to the point of being competitive about it. There's this thing in the backpacker community where you pitch up at a hostel somewhere and you have to pull out that real obscure place you've been. <laughs> and you know, you have to, oh well this is this is pretty good halibut, but you haven't had halibut until you've gone free diving in Alaska naked with you know whoever these folks are that you are with and actually killed this halibut with your knife. And that's the only way to eat halibut. And so there was this, this <laughs> desire I had, I think in, in an earlier part of life where, especially when I was traveling, you know, through the stands where I just wanted to get to the most remote place in Turkmenistan. And <laughs> that was it. You know, all these, all these crazy things you have. And what I found was that I was forcing the issue and I was effectively objectifying a concept of simplicity that didn't actually exist. I realized that wherever you go, people are people. And if we knew the language and if we understood the customs, we could get a little bit closer to that genuine experience. But there's a whole wide group of people in the world that don't have the desire or opportunity to seek out some of the thrilling things that we're discussing. Yeah. They might be very happy um, to pop into Saigon and to get on the tourist route and to have an organized experience of eating some banh mi or some, some spring rolls on the street and that might do it for them. And then there's those of us that want to go beyond and that want to get lost on a motorbike. Yeah. And what I've come to realize is that just having the courage and the curiosity to open your door 
and to see something different yeah. isn't. Yeah. There's no there's no hierarchy within what's the most really genuine and authentic. It's it's part of a journey we have. Yeah, and I think the so. The person who taught me about that, yeah, yeah, was exactly. The I don't I do not like organized tours personally, and but it goes back to what you said earlier on. You go on a tour and you're waiting to hear something the tour guide you hope he'd say. You know, not what what really goes on, and that's why it's very important to sort of go to these places and uh, make your own opinion more than anything. It's like self-education. Really good thing. Now, I know on top of what you do for GD Synergy, you also um, organized something. I think you hosted this, uh, something to do with the World Heritage Organization. Is is that true recently? World Her- yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, you're right about that. Um, I need to clarify, I had been uh, hired as a consultant a while ago to help bridge the gap between the language of cruise, which is inherently consumption, and the language of world heritage, which very oftentimes is about conservation. And so I was hired as a a conduit um, to look at how these two languages could be compatible. Yeah. So these two needs. And so what I, what you're referring to is something that is coming up depending on when this is broadcast on uh, February 19th. Oh, okay. I'm ahead of the game. I just saw the announcement. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. No worries about it. On February 19th, I've been fortunate enough to be invited by a group called our world heritage, which yeah, that is was a, yeah. mm-hmm. heritage professionals who have banded together to, really make some positive changes in the way that the heritage community um, communicates with the tourism community. Yeah. And so what I'll be doing and or will have done, depending on when this airs, is presenting five case studies of communities that I've worked with over time, wearing a number of different hats, to try to share some of the opportunities and pitfalls that we've had in creating these experiences. When you talk about not being interested in organized tours so much, um, I think what I do in creating products is to try to move people safely and at a comfortable level to have those experiences that you and I might have not in organized tours. And so I'm always asking, how can something be individualized within a group so that it's meaningful? Yeah, and this presentation that uh, that I'll be giving is is kind of well, not kind of, it is unique, and that we'll be talking to a tour operator about okay. how they build new experiences despite working within a property that has had tourists for a thousand years. Yeah. How do you how do you really do something new in Rome? How do you really yeah, show yeah. something? How how do you go to Ephesus in Turkey and do something new? Um, so I'm going to be talking to a core operator. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Uh, so how, how they do that. And they'll be talking to, um, some world heritage managers about the challenge between allowing tourists, visitors, travelers to experience their world heritage site while balancing the need for conservation of that because there's ongoing research. And then also we'll be looking at some of the pitfalls and some of the problems that happen when the travel industry players 
aren't necessarily the partners that destinations want them to be. I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's-, that, that's what we're doing. Thank you, thank you for asking about that. World heritage is important. And understanding how much of a role the world heritage machine plays in storytelling versus what the individuals that live within a heritage community feel yeah. about their heritage are ships passing in the night sometimes. Yeah, it's it, very important. That's interesting. You, you already may be aware of this, but did you know that a, there is a, a thing called a good country index? It looks at uh, their contribution to the planet and human race through the, the policies of the government and the people. And each country in the world is rated. And it's quite interesting. It's a really good index to look at. It looks at science, technology, contribution, peace. It, there's several categories. But I'm just interested whether you heard of this. And you might be interested, actually, to know who's like number one on the list as well. Well, I have I have a couple of thoughts, and what I would ask for I, I'm not uh, I'm not up currently with that index. Uh, I one of the joys of having access to so much information is we can find these new indexes as they as they uh, appear. But I wonder what's the correlation between that ranking and what was popular a few years ago being the world happiness. Uh, well, the world happiness, there, there is, uh, there, I think there's about four categories in the world happiness. I think Finland's number one now, by the way. And it was, I think there's government trust, education, longevity. There's a, there's a number of factors, but there's a human development index. There's several categories. But the, the one that I noticed here was the, the good country index is a reflection on, on how the country, what they do to contribute for the rest of the world for uh, the environment and peace and all that. Now, Sweden is number one. Denmark's number two, by the way. So it's, it's interesting to read this. And uh, if you look at that, you can actually manipulate the numbers to take away categories and see where each country comes up. But yeah, Sweden comes out top as a, a good country index in the world. Where's Japan in there? Uh, I think Japan are quite high up, actually. Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. The, the, the top three are Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Canada, Netherlands, which these are expected. Finland used to be number one. They dropped down. I think there was an issue with, uh, with the health coverage or something recently. Japan is up there. <laughs> yes. USA is 38th, by the way. So. Well, that's a, that's a better showing than I would have expected. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, but they, they do one in some categories, not so well in, in others. But anyway, take a look at that. I will. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's, it's, it seems to be apropos considering we're on this topic of conservation and uh, all this stuff. Now, just to change a little bit here, because I've known you for a while now. So based on what we talked about in the past, when do you expect the cruise industry to be, uh, back? in the water, so to speak, if that's correct. You think they, they'll be, uh, I'd say back to normal, but uh, when do you expect things to be back in action to a degree? Well, that's, that's an in- thank you for, for asking that question. Um, as you know, I've worked in the cruise industry and around the cruise industry for, goodness, must be six, six, going on 16 years now um, wow. within, within cruise. And cruise had always been the invincible product because whatever was happening in the world 
a cruise company could redeploy their ships to an area of the world where there was not unrest or there was not yeah. SARS or there was not uh, any sort of political upheaval. And so cruise was just so resilient and would grow year after year. And when this pandemic came in, all of a sudden cruise became the most dangerous place to be. And it's not mm. because the cruise ships are inherently dangerous. It's because every link in the supply chain to get you from your bedroom onto a cruise ship has to be completely safe before that vessel is going to be safe. Exactly, Everything yeah. you bring with you for the moment you leave your house to the time you get there comes on the ship. And so while ships on their own, if you have a sterile ship, if you have a safe ship, a ship's the safest place to be. Yeah. When um, people started becoming aware of the severity of COVID-19, many of my colleagues were stuck at sea and they had anxiety about being stuck at oh, sea. Yeah. And I said to some of them, hey, man, you are in the safest place in the world right now because you have had no contact with this with this virus. And now, you know, you're not going to because you're out in the middle of the ocean. So to answer your question, when is it going to be OK? The answer is nobody knows. There are so many variables that keep getting thrown into our global recovery that anything about when ships are able to resume sailing safely on a large scale is speculative. There are ships that are running out of Singapore right now that are cruises to nowhere. There are cruises going on for only Japanese residents yeah. that are going around Japan at the moment. New Zealand has a small expedition ship that yeah. is for New Zealand residents that's moving around yeah. New Zealand. And there are, you know, within within the Mediterranean, MSC has a product that's out there too. The reality is, until destinations feel confident that they are safe against the various coronavirus variants that would be coming from around the world that collect on a cruise ship, cruising will not be able to resume in the same manner that it had been in oh, the past. Absolutely. Um, you can make plans to go on a cruise. Cruise lines can schedule itineraries, but another variant pops up and suddenly that changes everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing to look at with cruise is in order to resume to somewhat normal cruising patterns, you have to mobilize these incredible armies of crew members that are back at home. And are there enough flights? Are there enough hotels to safely quarantine people? Are there enough vaccines? Does the Philippines have enough vaccine to vaccinate all of those crew members yep. that need to go around the world to staff these ships that we so much take for granted? And from an ethical point of view, would it be inappropriate for the cruise industry to vaccinate crew members while there are other people who are in need of the vaccine in different host countries. So do you vaccinate uh, 20,000 Filipino crew members ahead of more at-risk people in the Philippines? All these things need to be considered. So I am going to say that while I think it's a good idea for people to book their voyages now yep. and to, to be confident to look forward to these yep. things, 
I think we are going to optimistically be looking at November. Of November. Okay. I just wonder whether it's stretching so. to 2022. Yeah, I, I, I think tend, for, to, tend to agree with you. For Americans, for Americans, I think November of 2021 is the earliest. Yeah. But that is still, you know, that that's optimistic. Me personally, I don't expect that I'll be back on a ship doing much meaningful until at least nah. January. It's a bit worrisome here. As yet. It may be destination dependent. There may be limitations. But also, of course, as you alluded to, if a cruise ship pulls into a port, well, maybe that port doesn't want anyone from the ship to go in their country. So, I mean, there's going to be restrictions there as well. So, That's huge. Yeah. And there's also, you know, cruising Cruising is going to have to change in some ways. In the cruise industry, people are very sharp. They want to fill these ships. There's a lot of expensive hardware out there. And there are a lot of jobs that are dependent on this resuming. Yeah. One of the things that we've known for cruising is the quick turnarounds that happen on uh, on days when you leave and enter the ship. Oftentimes, yeah. you'll get off a ship at 8 o'clock in the morning, and by noon, that ship will be filled with new passengers. That, that always amazed me. Just the logistics of doing that is unbelievable, isn't it? I, I don't it's know how they do it. It's incredible. It is because one thing we know is that if you're on a cruise, you want to stay later than you're supposed to. And if you're coming on a cruise, you want to get on earlier than you've been told you can. Yes. So how <laughs> this works, it takes incredible organization and it is the wonderful talents of all those crew members out there pull up their shifts on that day. However, with all the restrictions that are in place now, that's, that's a fantasy to do those three, four hour turnarounds, especially if passengers have to quarantine on arrival into countries before they can go out. So for example, if you needed to quarantine for 10 days arriving into the UK before you were going to take a UK cruise, how many people are going to be ready to put that money up for that extra 10 days of their hotel? Yeah, exactly. I know. Well, November at the earliest, most likely into early 2022. Uh, As you know, Canada has just restricted cruising for, uh, for the next year. And that means that Operators carrying more than 100 people on board 100 souls won't be able to go into Alaska. That's true, uh, yeah. American flag vessels because of the uh, the Jones Act and far foreign and cabotage. Yeah. Um, but that was responsible of Canada to yeah. say, okay, this is the playing field. Let's acknowledge it. Let's not fantasize that we're going to be going on a cruise this summer in Alaska. Let's not fantasize that these crew members are going to be back to work. Let's just take a knee. And let's build into making. I did a transatlantic once where there was 5,000 passengers on board. And you know, well, there's, some, there's a lot of days at sea. And I always wondered, this just seems a lot of days at sea without getting off a ship here. And what if there was something break out, some illness break, breaks out on the ship here? That would be bad, you know. But luckily it didn't. And these types of cruises happened all the time. But it wasn't in the back of my mind. I remember that just because there's so many people on board, you know. Isn't someone going to get something that's contagious? Anyway, it's. I know, absolutely. And the cruise industry, to the cruise industry's credit, um, and one thing that I've always said is the cruise industry has been very good with hygiene yeah. and with identifying when people are ill and quarantining them yeah. uh, before it becomes an issue. I mean, I think cruise companies have to declare if more than 1% of their capacity had something like a norovirus yeah. or whatnot. And so they're very concerned about this. Uh, people used to make fun of me for 
all the hand sanitizer I used to use because on cruise ships, you're used to hand sanitizing. Oh, yeah, all the time. And I think one of the surprises last year for me when coronavirus really took hold, when we ran out of soap and whatnot is how come people weren't washing their hands before this? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. I know. Well, what, you know, cruise ship industry aside, let's, let's look forward to 2022. We say that when you reckon they're going to be the top destinations going into 2022. Any, any thoughts about that? Or is it just where so, it's going to be safe? I don't know. Yeah. Traditionally, Malcolm, we know that when destinations or even if they're not known as destinations at the time, places in the world that have experienced hardship bounce back, their, their economies bounce back through backpacker tourism. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So budget travelers, we not say budget, but backpackers, yeah. those that are able to go into places that have good value for money, those are the places that become the ones that snap back. We saw that in Croatia, yeah. in Vietnam, Argentina, places that have had a little bit of challenge and then people are able to go back in there and for, for good value, spend time exactly, there. Yeah. And that helps build back the economies. Yeah. In this post-coronavirus future, whenever that is, or in this new normal, there are going to be different factors that lead to visitor recovery. I am going to say that the hot thing for tourism is going to be local outdoor events for quite some time. Yes. And that the destinations are going to be driven by people discovering what's in their community. Goodness, we've been stuck in our homes for so long that we start to get, we start to find interesting things about the trees in our yard, about the fabrics on our, on our carpets. And so even though there may not be as much confidence in traveling by air or going in the U.S. out of state or country yeah. to country, the historical societies that have always been pushed off to the side in small towns, they're going to have their day. They yeah. are going to say, this is your community. This is what's in it. This is interesting. And so you're going to find more folks like myself who are used to lecturing on the history of Cinque Terre yeah. to be doing, have been doing research over the past months and can't wait to tell the stories of the New Hampshire woods to anyone that will listen. I think that micro, micro tourism is going to be very big yeah. uh, and localized tourism as far as what destinations are likely to be driven by mass tourism going forward, right. it's going to be a crapshoot on safety. And what destinations need to be aware of is yeah. that their financial vulnerabilities may lead them to eschew some safety protocols yeah. for short-term gain, and that that may have a longer-term impact than they expect. Yeah. I am terribly worried that in the Caribbean, where there has been such a dependency on whether it's cruise tourism yep. or all inclusives, yep. that there's going to be a race to say that visitors can come without having the correct safety protocols in play right. for their residents. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. 
And that's a concern. You got to be um, The other trend we're going to see is people renting homes more. You know, there's this big backlash against Airbnb in the year prior to coronavirus. Yeah. A year ago, all of us were concerned about over tourism. Yeah. What folks are going to do is go to a different house to yeah. stay in some place that they yes. That's happening here. I, I live on the beach in Destin, Florida. What's happening here, the rental of homes has always been big anyway. It's still happening, but the real estate market is doing quite well here. So people want the second home. So get out from where that to come to the beach. That's been quite big. But going back to what you said, you know, people will, will stay local. Uh, maybe you'll be on first name basis with the local animals there. I mean, I've got Sid the snake, I've got Ozzy the osprey, and Tom the turtle here right now. So I'm just saying, <laughs> you just get, they come by and see you one day, you know. Oh, yeah, how you doing? Yeah, Bob Bob the bear and I are eyeing each other from time to time, wondering if we both feel comfortable enough to have a beer. Uh, neither one of us is ready to commit. Oh, no, yeah, 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 you'll keep the distance from Bob, I'm sure. <laughs> That's funny. Saying that, I mean, to me... And you may be the same. I've always got to have something to look forward to. And my wife and I have booked to go away, actually May the 31st. Now, I don't whether this happens or not, uh, we, we booked to go to Asia, and we're going to stay in Asia a month. And that's what I said. Whether we actually do, now, do that or not. We couldn't get in there right now because of the restrictions, so we don't know. it. But to us, it's something to look forward to. If we have to defer it, then so be it. Then we'll do it. But for now, that's the situation. The bucket list is an overused term, in my opinion, but do you have somewhere right now in your brain cells that you said, I wish I could go there, or when all this is over, I'm going to go here. Have you got anything like that? That is, uh, yes, I, I do. One thing that has happened to me, Malcolm, I, I know you know this, but those listening may not, is that for the past 15 years, I've been on the road 10, 11 months out of the year. Yeah, unbelievable. And so this past year of staying in one place, buying a house, living out in the woods has been very interesting for me and in how much it's changed my lifestyle. One of the things I noticed is that after staying in so many hotels and on so many cruise ships and being in so many airport lounges is I actually had to buy shampoo. I didn't know that shampoo came in a size other than a one ounce bottle. Um, and so this was, this was very liberating to use the same shampoo day in and day out was exciting. I've also been able to go through so many memories of the places I've traveled and relive those experiences from here. So I find myself looking at pictures from, uh, from Chile and trying to buy foods and spices that can conjure up those moments of there. So I, I do a lot of cooking to recreate aromas that remind me of places I've been. And the reason I say that is because I got into such a routine of popping into Dubrovnik, Barcelona, Saigon, Buenos Aires, Santiago, uh, Oslo, wherever it was. And because I was on the road so much, I developed routines so that I could have a community where I visited. So yeah. I could go to the same coffee shop in, uh, in Santa Margarita. Yeah. And get, hey, how are you? Sort of that cheers, <laughs> norm yeah. feeling. And so I look to go back to places and revisit them for the first time again. That's if a that makes thing to do. So, something to look forward to. And it's actually so the, you look at old photographs and old videos. And I do that a lot. Yeah. Just to 
Like, God, I wish I was there now. But I'll tell you what I also do. If you look on YouTube and bring up a place you've been to, it's like you've been in Thailand, and you'll see places, either, they could be places of questionable merit or just busy places, however, deserted now. And you think, ah, that's not the place I went to before. But just looking on YouTube is a cool thing to do. But I think so. I mean, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of virtual, there are a lot of virtual guides out there. There are a lot of tour guides that have gone virtual yeah. and they use some of these technologies like Google Earth, Google Maps to show you places. Um, one of the things that was going to happen and still is happening is people who are traveling under these restrictions now aren't able to engage with the people. No. So if you were to walk down the street in, I don't know, let's say in Katakalon, yeah. you know, or if you go to uh, a place where you're used to having all the restaurateurs wave at you and say hello. And yeah. you're, you know, the waiter make that joke that may be not appropriate in, you know, your, your circles yeah. at home, but there it's okay. That's something that's missing. But I'll tell you the one place that I have wanted to go this whole time. This is astounding. I am looking forward to going to the helix in Scotland and seeing those hundred foot tall statues of the horses that are known as the Kelpies. Now, this is a very strange and accessible, yet accessible thing to do. Right. For those that haven't seen it, just Google the Kelpies helix. And I don't know if you're familiar with these, these giant horse statues. Yeah. And for some reason, what I want to do more than anything is put on the rucksack, get out the boots, and have a 10-day walk that goes through there. And I want to see those in person. Uh, and that's what's that's what's driving me. That's you know, if you had asked me a year ago, it would have been something that may have seemed more exotic, but that's what I want to do. Yeah. In addition to seeing my brother in San Francisco and catching up with friends around the world, the tourist destination that I want to see the most. I want to get up and see those Kelpies. Yeah, I think family is important as well because my, my family is geographically dispersed. I speak to my sister recently. She's having their first, her and her husband are having the first dose of AstraZeneca, I think, tomorrow. But it's going to mm-hmm. be a while, you know. So there's a lot we're going to be wanting to do, if not this year, next year. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. I think I'm probably older than you, Jeff, but. This year, 2020, was a way. Yeah, you have so many years left on the planet. No one gets out of this place alive. But you think, God, 2020, what a complete waste of time. And I, you know, it's it's just, I don't have that many left. I have a few, hopefully, but it's just a wasted year. And that's why I'm sort of getting itchy feet. We've been disciplined enough to suck it up. Uh, but, yeah, it'd be nice to sort of be able to get away sometime in uh, 2021. Anyway, one one more question for you before we bail out of here. And I've asked this question a few times. People have asked me this question. You're in a great place, what, by the way, New Hampshire, knee-deep in snow. That's what you love to do. <laughs> right. uh, if there was another country or place you would go and live for a few months, where would that be? Well, that's – so I, I lived, as you know, in the UK for a lot of my life, almost yeah. half of my life, even even though I'm on the road. You know, my my socks and smelly sneakers were, were in the UK for, yeah, for a lot of the I got it. And so there is a little bit of me that always wants to return to the life that I had there. Yeah. That said, I used to keep a running list of places that I would want to live if I had the opportunity to slow down. 
And some of those are ones that I've mentioned in the course of this conversation, whether it's Croatia is a country that I, I feel very fondly towards and would like to be able to go and learn more of the, the language. Yeah. Um, I'm also uh, a huge fan of Patagonia and the southern part of South America. That's a place that's always felt like home. And as far as a city goes, if it weren't to be, you know, if it wasn't going to be San Francisco or the big metropolis of Webster, New Hampshire, where I am now, or London, I still very much love Saigon. And lastly, um, I got to say, my heart, a lot of it's in Istanbul. That has been one of my favorite, most comfortable places to be. Now, having said all of that, where I am right now in New Hampshire with the snow and in the woods is full circle for me because I'm living 20 minutes from where I grew up. And with all the travel I've done and all the places that I could live, I'm the happiest right now having had this boomerang return home. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Jeff, there's probably a lot of people that are jealous of what you've been through. You've, you've been through a lot. You've seen a lot of places. You've learned a lot along the way. So, uh, well, good for you. I'm going to check more out of your website, GD Synergy. If people want to actually contact you who have a real interest in what you do and what you teach, how can they contact you? Just by your web through your website? Would that be the best way? Yeah, hop on the website and shoot me an email. Uh, through that, it's a very... It's a very simple website um, because people who know what I do know what what I do, and they know that they come to me and we talk about what they're interested in, and we build experiences for sure. them based on what their interests are. Uh, I'm not a travel agent by any sense. What I do is I work with companies and I work with individuals, give them ideas about how to get the experience that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And so anybody is able to contact me through that. Uh, every month I host an anthropology series called the Xenia series and the anthropology of travel tourism. And that's something that through the website, you can sign up to that mailing list and observe some of those. But what I really like doing is when people shoot me an email and they say, Hey, I'm thinking about going to Iceland. What do you think about that? And then they book a time. We talk about Iceland for a little while. And by the end of it, they usually end up going to Greenland instead. <laughs> so, it's kind of fun. That's, that's how people can get in touch. Um, what I would say as a, as a final note is it was just about a year ago when those of us who work in travel and who have traveled so much found out that maybe we didn't need to rush to renew the passport that month, that we were going to be here for a little while. And at that time, there was an optimism. As I said earlier, Emphasis on over-tourism. Yes. Are there too many visitors going to the same places? How do we diversify the economic and physical impact of tourism? And we had this opportunity during this, as cruise ships will call it, an operational pause or hotels will call it an unintentional uh, refurbishment period. There is an optimism that destinations and the tourism industry would reset and say, how can we do better? Yeah. How can we tell stories that are meaningful? How can we differentiate our experience from any other place? Mm-hmm. How can we put our best for, foot forward and be long-term sustainable partners? Yeah. And that hasn't happened. 
companies cut their budgets. Local, uh, local tourism offices shuttered their doors. And so in this next four, six, eight, maybe 12 months, for anybody that's listening, I would urge cooperation between for-profit industries, heritage organizations, local tourism boards to really spend this time rethinking what they want that future to look like. Yeah. What is the tourist that you want to have and how can you attract them? And when they get there, how can you exceed their expectations? And for the traveler, take the time now to learn as much as you can about the places that you're going so that when you get there, you're an expert and you can only listen and learn more. Exactly. Words of wisdom. All right. Excellent, Jeff. Well done. Anyway, look, I appreciate you joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. You know, time's passed. It's been about an hour. Good Lord. I went oh, my gosh. Go, right? I'll tell you. The older you get, the quicker time goes by. But anyway, thanks for joining me today, Jeff. Uh, we'll be in touch anyway in the future. But for now, take care of yourself up there. Watch out for Bob the Bear, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't land up on his dinner plate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep in touch and uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon, all right? Great. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I hope that you and I are able to share a meal together in person before too long <laughs> and congratulate each other on what we've done in our lives. All right. Cheers, mate. Take talk you later. Bye-bye. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, malcolmjteasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe.